Brothers and sisters, it's good to be with you all this morning. It's a joy to see you all. I bring you greetings from the saints at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, where I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors. I also bring you greetings from PG, Pastor David Goff, who faithfully served you for many years and who's been a dear friend to me. He regularly sends me a text message on Sunday mornings, letting me know that whatever I've got going on this day, he's praying for me. He's giving me some scriptural encouragement, so I had to tell him this morning where I was going to be. And he, he sends you all love. Uh, I suppose my only loss this morning is not getting to see Omar and Stephanie since they're away. Uh, at least I got to have lunch with Omar this week. He's always an encouragement to me, such a dear brother and a great encouragement to my soul and a great help in my ministry. I guess one final loss for me is I would rather hear Omar preach than preach myself. Uh, but it is a blessing and a privilege to get to open God's word to you uh, this morning. I'll get to hear Omar some other time. Speaking of loss... Loss is something we often try to ignore or downplay. When tragedy strikes someone else, part of you thinks, at least it wasn't me. And then you get on with your life. Or maybe when the loss is too close to ignore, you might try to downplay or minimize it. But then if the loss is big enough, maybe you try to deny it. This can't be true. This isn't happening. It must be happening to somebody else. The writer Catherine Schultz has said of loss, we often ignore its true scope if we can, but for a while after my father died, I could not stop seeing the world as it really is, marked everywhere by the evidence of past losses and the imminence of future ones. You naturally want your life to be a series of gains that accumulate and multiply and build on each other. But when you suffer a big enough loss, you realize that loss is a far truer summary of life than gain is. And when you see that, you're actually seeing the world more truly, more clearly than you saw it before. As Schultz puts it, loss forces us to confront the limits of existence. The fact that sooner or later, it is in the nature of almost everything to vanish or perish. What losses have you suffered? What will you do when loss comes knocking? One of the hardest lessons of loss is that in the face of the very worst losses, you're powerless. You can't prevent them and you can't restore them. That hard lesson tempts us to seek refuge in either denial or despair. The worst part about the worst loss is that there's nothing you can do about it. But what about God? What can God do about the worst loss that you can imagine? As both Adam and Warner mentioned, and as you see in your bulletin, this morning we're turning to the Old Testament historical book of 1 Samuel. We will cover three full chapters, and I will read almost every word from all three of those chapters. So you want to grab a Bible, you want to follow along in a Bible. Uh, if, you, if your Bibles in the pews match the page numbers of mine, it starts on page 228. We will work through chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, the very first verse of chapter 7. In these chapters, the whole people of Israel are in a season of loss and suffering. 
the Philistines have been oppressing them and their priesthood is corrupt and is inflicting harm on the people rather than ministering to the people. And as we'll see in the first part of the passage, the people of Israel suffer the greatest loss that they can imagine. And then the rest of the passage shows us what God does about it. So our key question for this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. What can God do about the greatest loss that you can imagine? Point one, loss. Point number one, loss. All, that covers all of chapter four. All of chapter four tells us the story of Israel suffering and then responding to a catastrophic loss. Look first to chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So Israel suffers a serious loss at the hand of the Philistines. The text doesn't tell us why God ordained that Israel would suffer this defeat, but it does tell us in verse 3 that it was ultimately God who ordained that they be defeated in battle. Now, what should they have done in response to this loss? The whole first three chapters of the book of Samuel are about how God has given them a prophet. He's given this man his word. He has sent Samuel out on this kind of circuit, preaching and teaching throughout all Israel so that all Israel has access to the word of the Lord through Samuel. So suffer loss in battle. What should you do? Maybe ask the prophet God has appointed. Maybe ask the guy who has a direct line to heaven, who can tell you exactly what the Lord wants you to do. But instead of asking God, they ask themselves, why has the Lord defeated us? Brothers and sisters, if you want help from God, use the means God has given. Search his word, seek godly counsel, talk to people who know you well and who know the Lord well. If you want to know God's will, don't ask yourself, don't ask your feelings, ask God's word. But now the people, instead of seeking an answer from God, they, they turn around and answer their own question that they ask themselves. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. This Ark was a sacred, gold-covered, portable box. It was about four feet long by two feet wide. It represented the Lord's rule over his people. It was his earthly throne. Hence the description we read of God in the Psalms that he's enthroned on the cherubim, meaning the cherubim on the ark. That's God's earthly throne. The ark also represented God's revelation, since it contained the two tablets of the law from Mount Sinai. And the ark signified God's reconciliation. Uh, 
since the lid of the ark every year was sprinkled with blood on the day of atonement. The ark was the visible sign of God's presence with his people and his grace toward his people. And here, the people put their faith in the picture of God rather than in the God it pictured. That's what's going on here. So the people thought they could guarantee victory by sending out the ark. We're defeated this time, but ah, if we bring out the ark, now we're going to win. They thought they could control God's presence and actions and thereby control the outcome of their conflict. But God will not be controlled. God will not be manipulated. God will not be strong-armed into doing everything we want him to do when we want him to do it. So, brothers and sisters, one way you can guard against treating God as a magic genie who's just there to give you everything you want all the time that you want it is in how you pray, both individually and as a church. So when you pray, don't merely ask God for the things you want or need, although that's important and that's part of even how we've prayed together this morning. But in addition, glorify God for how great he is. Praise him for who he is and what he's done for you. And also confess to him how uh, how far short of his will you fall, just like we've had a prayer of confession in the service this morning. Glorify him for who he is. Confess how far short of his glory you fall. Acknowledge him as the real God, the true God, the one who's sovereign over you, and bring him your requests as your loving heavenly father. But don't treat prayer as a means of trying to control God or manipulate God, as if God is just a divine vending machine where you put in the dollar and out comes the bag of chips. God is far more to us than a divine vending machine. And the true test of that is how you pray to him. If you're not a believer in Jesus, do you view religion as a kind of belief in like a lucky magic charm? Where if maybe you just have this certain object, or maybe if you just use certain phrases, maybe if you just kind of get the right code that you send up to heaven, everything will go the way you want. As if Christians are just thinking, oh, I believe in God because he'll give me all the things I want if I just kind of say the magic words. Certainly there are people who treat religion like that. But that God is not this God. So what happened when Israel tried to manipulate God, when they tried to engineer the result they wanted? Verses 5 to 9. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. As the battle is set to begin, the Israelites are pumped up and the Philistines are terrified. They've heard about what the Lord did in the Exodus and they don't want something similar to happen to them. 
Now, they garble a few details in their recounting of the Exodus. For instance, a minor point, uh, like the fact that the plagues happened in Egypt, not in the wilderness. They also get a major point wrong, which is the fact that they're not dealing with many gods, as they say in the plural, but one God, the true God. But still, they're right to fear God's power. They're right to be afraid of what's happening. The question is, was Israel right to be so confident? Verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is a total defeat. This is a worse defeat. Seven times more soldiers died this time than last time. Not only that, but the ark, rather than guaranteeing their victory, became a casualty of defeat and got captured and taken away. The ark was taken as a plunder of war. And Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died on a single day in fulfillment of God's promised judgment, which he had told them in chapters 2 and 3. Some losses are self-inflicted, and grasping for control only makes them worse. What is God doing here? He's judging his people for their presumption. He's punishing them for thinking they can control him. But he's also fulfilling the prophetic word he spoke to Eli back in chapter 2. He's at once judging his people and graciously setting his renewing work in motion, judging corrupt priests, getting rid of them, and preparing the way for cleansing and renewal of his people. Now, in the rest of chapter 4, we hear two accounts of how people back home took the news. Here's this defeat in battle. How did people back home receive it? Uh, verses 12 to 18. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the, men said, the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. This is a tragic result of tragic news. Eli's broken heart caused him to fall in a way that would break his neck. But what caused the broken heart? It wasn't the news of Israel's defeat or even the death of his two sons. Look again at verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, 
Eli fell over backward. The loss of the ark is equally prominent in the second report and its results in verses 19 to 22. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Like Eli, his daughter-in-law is crushed by this news. In her case, this tragic report brought on labor, which then brought about her own death. Like Eli, she too died of a broken heart. And like Eli, the fatal blow wasn't the defeat of the people or even the death of her own husband, but the departure of the ark. That's why she names her son what she does in verse 21, calling him Ichabod. In Hebrew, that's pronounced more like Ichavod. His name is the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, with a short word e on the front of it. That little e can mean where or alas, like a lament. So Ichabod's name literally means where is the glory or alas for the glory. She doesn't name her son after his father. She doesn't name her son in a way that commemorates his father's death. Instead, she names him after the ark that has gone away. That's what verses 21 and 22 tell us twice. So far from denying her loss, this bold Israelite woman brands her son with it. She turns her son into a living lament for the departed ark. So Eli and his daughter-in-law's attitude show us two things. On the one hand, the fact that the people of Israel took the ark into battle shows us that they wrongly trusted in it. But on the other hand, this woman's mournful declaration about the ark and Eli's own tragic death show us that they rightly prized it. They rightly valued having God's presence with them. They knew what a big deal it was for God's visible presence to leave, to be separated from them, for him no longer to be dwelling visibly in their midst. The ark was the tangible evidence that God dwelt with his people. And so on one level, they understood that the presence of God is more important than any earthly blessing. It is more important to have God with you than to have anything else you could want. It is better to be defeated with God than to be victorious without God. That's what we learn from the end of chapter 4. But we also need to take one more look at a word in these last two verses. This time it's the word departed, which shows up in both verse 21 and 22. The glory has departed. This word is crucial to what's happening in all three of these chapters. The Hebrew verb here is galah. Uh, in addition to meaning uncover or go away, it's also the technical term used elsewhere in Scripture for go into exile. In other words, when God would later punish his people for their sin and kick them out of the land he had given them, this is the word that gets used. They went into exile. You'll see that in the footnote of the ESV. So the question here is, who goes into exile? 
It's not the people of Israel, like what happened later. Here, it's the Lord himself. It's like when in Ezekiel chapters 8 to 10, the prophet watches the glory of God lift off from the temple and forsake the people and head east. By removing from them the visible sign of his presence, there's a sense in which God is forsaking his people and their land, and he himself is heading into exile, where he will become the captive of foreigners and foreign gods like his people later would be. All of us need a home. All of us want a home. And the longing for a lost home is one of the most painful ongoing losses many of us experience. There are two ways you can lose a home. One is to leave. The other is to stay. But to have home change for the worse, out from under your feet. Have you ever lost a home? Do you long for a home? In this chapter, the Israelites lost home when God himself went into exile. Now, with God gone, they're going to be exiles in their own land. They're homeless at home. What loss could matter more than the exit of God himself to hidden exile? Which brings us to point two in chapter five. Point two, exile. Exile. The end of chapter four tells us that Yahweh himself went into exile. All of chapter five tells us what he did while in exile. Look first at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. At this point, the Philistines are gloating. They're thinking, aha, now we've got you. Poor, sad little God of the Israelites. He's not so mighty after all. We didn't have to be so afraid of what he did in Egypt. He can't protect his own people. In fact, he can't even protect himself. We've got him right here. So it's not just Israel who lose. It's the Lord. To all appearances, Yahweh has been defeated and captured. He's been shamed and humiliated. He's now a prize in the trophy room of the idol Dagon. Like a championship team will line up all their cups that they win, you know, NBA finals, right? They'll keep it in a trophy room. This is as if Dagon has put the Lord into his trophy room. That's where he is right now. But keep reading. Verses three to five. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. On the first morning, the Philistines discover their God prostrate on the ground, flat on his face. Now he's no longer the triumphant victor. He's a humble worshiper, bowing in the presence 
of Yahweh. So what did the Philistines do in verse 3? They put him back in his place. They set him upright again. Maybe they nailed down his feet for good measure. What happens when idols fall? Sadly, all too often, their worshipers work to restore them. Those who worship idols, when those idols fail, set them back in their place. In America today, many more people worship power and pleasure than they worship more tangible physical gods, images, idols. But sex and money and pleasure and status are still false gods. When is the last time an idol failed you? And have you ever worked to put an idol back in its place? Idols demand more and more while giving less and less. And each time you think, maybe this time it'll be different. I imagine the Philistines were thinking something like that on the next morning until they discovered their God not just lying on the floor, but with his head and his hands chopped off. Now Dagon is not just humbled before Yahweh, but defeated, decimated. Their God has now become a casualty of war. The victor has become the vanquished, and the vanquished has become the victor. Dagon no longer has a head to think with or hands to act with. He's done. The true God has effortlessly de-godded Dagon. But Yahweh is just getting warmed up. Verse 6 tells us that, unlike Dagon's chopped off hands, Yahweh's hand is heavy against the Philistines. Look at verses 6 through 12. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, when it says the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, it's difficult to be 100% certain but it seems that the Lord is afflicting the Philistines with plague, specifically bubonic plague. It's attested all the way back then in ancient history. 
That would explain the tumors or boils that broke out on them. That's one of the symptoms. It also explains why so many people died and why there was such a panic going through all the people. And then finally, we'll see in chapter 6 that when the Philistines send the ark back, they do so with a guilt offering of both golden tumors, like the boils on their skin, and golden mice. Why mice? That seems like such a weird, random detail. Well, the Hebrew noun covers a broad range of rodents. And bubonic plague is spread by fleas that live on rats. So it seems he's afflicting them with plague. In any case, the main point is that unlike the handless Dagon, the hand of the Lord is heavy against the Philistines in judgment. Despite his apparent captivity as a prisoner of war, he is raining down plague on the people. First, the people of Ashdod, then they get wise to what's going on. They realize the Lord is against them because they're keeping his ark. And so they do the kind and courageous thing of sending the ark to their next door neighbor city, Gath. But then the same thing happens there. So the people of Gath send it to another city, Ekron. But by this time, word has gotten around. <laughs> the citizens of Ekron are well informed of the destructive deeds of the Ark of Yahweh. And so they, they protest. Enough is enough. Verse 11, send away the Ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. That's the question that the Philistines start to ask in verse 8. What shall we do? with the ark of the God of Israel. Here's how one commentator rephrases their question. What shall we do with this prized trophy that has turned out to be an unbearable threat? This God, the God of Israel, is no trophy. He's no genie, no rabbit's foot, no prize to put in your trophy room. And he's no divine vending machine either. If you try to treat him as any of those things, then you will discover Someday, whether sooner or much later, that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe and he will not be manipulated, he will not be trifled with, he will not be controlled, and he will be nobody's prize or trophy. This whole section is a sovereign parody of a victory tour. So if one king conquers another king, he might parade him around his territory to rub it in his face. I've got all the power, you've got none. I'm the victor, you're the vanquished, and I'm going to march you before all my people to show it. Well, Yahweh has turned the tables. It looked like he's the vanquished, but he's going on his own little victory tour, making a circuit of the cities of the Philistines, showing them who's still in charge. Unlike any of the false gods, unlike Dagon who needs his, his worshipers to set him back upright when he falls down, Yahweh needs no assistance. Yahweh needs no help. He needs no one's permission or power to act as he sees fit. When it looks like his hands are tied, he can shake off the chains in an instant. He is the self-starter, the self-mover, the sovereign initiative taker, the one who can make a new beginning when there is no new beginning. He can turn every defeat into victory and every captivity into freedom. He can turn night into day, grief into joy, all despair into everlasting rejoicing. Now, we have to keep in mind where this is happening and who's not there. This is all taking place in Philistine territory. And the Israelites don't know any about it. 
It's not like there's reports on the news or social media. Yahweh devastates the territory of the Philistines, you know, tonight at 7. They don't know any of this. They don't hear about any of this. All they know is that Yahweh had withdrawn his presence. All they know is that he seemed to have slunk away in defeat. All that he was doing in Philistia, they had no idea. Now, of course, God himself doesn't suffer. God himself can't be taken captive. But the point is he allowed the visible sign of his presence to suffer this kind of humiliation and defeat. He allowed his reputation to be ruined. So chapter 5 shows us what God was doing during his own exile. It shows us what was happening to the Lord himself, as it were, in the days of his humiliation. This all happened in the night of darkness, when he was distant from his people and hidden from them. This is what he was doing in the dark when they couldn't see it. So the question is, what is God doing in your suffering? What is God doing that you can't see? Is he any less active in the dark night that you're going through? Is he any less powerful, any less purposeful? If Yahweh can do all this during his own exile, what can he do in yours? But exile, whether God's or ours, is not the end of the story. We've got one more chapter, one more point. Point number three, homecoming. Homecoming. Who comes home? The Lord himself. That's the point of the whole rest of the passage, chapter 6, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 1. How does the Lord get home from his sojourn among the Philistines? Verses 1 to 6 show us how it starts. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts? as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them. Did they not send the people away? And they departed. What's happening here? Do, do the Philistine priests really know what's going on? Do they really know how to deal with the Lord? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's basically they're giving this their best guess. <laughs> They're doing the best they can. Okay, God afflicted them with tumors that were spread by rodents, so they're going to send back a sacrificial offering made out of gold, a costly offering, kind of imaging their suffering to say, okay, okay can, we, can you re remove your wrath from us? 
They're doing their best. They're kind of taking a stab in the dark. And like the Egyptians sent away the people of Israel with costly gold jewelry, so the Philistines send Yahweh up out of their land laden with gifts of gold. The rationale they give for this in verses 5 and 6, basically, why should you harden your hearts just like Pharaoh did? Uh, Did he not send the people away and they departed? In other words, they know about the exodus and they know what caused it. It was Pharaoh's hardness of heart. It was Pharaoh's refusal to give God glory. So here, in some way, this is not like a full conversion or repentance or anything, but in some way, they're, they're recognizing God's sovereignty and they're giving him glory. They're giving him a sacrifice. They're sending his ark back to its territory. Now, throughout these verses and really the whole passage, there's a word play on the Hebrew word for glory, like what came up in Ichabod's name, the Hebrew word kavod. The literal meaning of that word is heavy. Eli, the priest, was heavy, but he treated God lightly, and eventually God used Eli's heaviness against him when he fell and broke his neck. To give God glory is to treat him with the weight he deserves, not to treat him lightly. So the Israelites did not treat God with the weight he deserved. They treated him lightly, like they they could just cart him around and get him to do whatever they wanted. And so God's weighty glory forsook them. The Philistines have treated God lightly, so God has brought down his hand heavily upon them. This, thus, thus, there's this trade, this reversal that the Philistine priests are hoping for here. If they start to give him glory, if they start to recognize him with the kind of weight he deserves, well, maybe he'll lighten his hands. Maybe he'll ease up. Maybe he'll re- remove the pressure that he's putting on them. But this isn't just a clever wordplay. This is the heart of the issue of how you relate to God. How much weight do you give him? Is he the moral center of gravity of your whole life? Does what he thinks weigh heavier than what you think? Does what he think weigh heavier than what other people think? Your friends, your family members, your neighbors, your co-workers. To give God glory is to give him weight. It's for him to be the sun at the center of your solar system that everything orbits around. There's real practical tests of that. When there's conflict in terms of who wants what, who wins? That shows you the kind of weight you are giving to God or not. And so the same test that the Israelites failed, the same test that the Philistines failed and then kind of got a little bit of insight and started to pass, what's the test for all of us today? How much weight do you give to the Lord? What does that look like practically in your life? Do you trust him? Do you repent? Do you obey? Do you give something up because he says to give it up? That's the practical test of giving God the weight, the glory that he deserves. That's what the Philistines are just barely starting to do. So they send the ark away. The the next few verses show us how. Verses 7 to 9. Now then... Take and prepare a a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. 
and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own lands, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So here the Philistines set up a test to kind of try to know for sure what's really happened. These are milk cows who have recently given birth to calves who will thus have overwhelming natural instincts to return back to their calves, one of nature's strongest instincts. Don't, don't separate mom from newborn young. So if these cows head straight back for Israelite territory, away from their calves at home, it must be that it's the Lord directing them. And therefore, he's the one who caused all these plagues. We can know for sure. Now, this is not setting up a model for how to discern the Lord's will, right? It's like Gideon's fleece. No, you're not supposed to put out a fleece. You know, this is not a model for us, but God graciously condescends to play along. And he signs his signature in the cow's straight footprints as they walk straight on into Israelite territory. Verses 10 to 16 we see the Lord himself come home. Verses 10 to 16, The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box of the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So the men of the Israelite city of Beth Shemesh are outside reaping the harvest, when they lift up their eyes from their work, and what do they see? Now, just in terms of visual appearances, what they saw would have looked like a golden golf cart being pulled by cows across the countryside. But the reality is far deeper than the appearance. Yahweh had been captured. Yahweh had gone into exile. And now Yahweh has come home. The Lord returned from his own self-imposed exile. He accomplished his own self-exodus, going down into captivity and coming back up out again. He voluntarily checked into the prison of Dagon's temple so that he could break himself out. He willingly endured captivity and humiliation in order to say to all of the Philistines and Israel and ultimately to us, watch this. Watch what happens when it looks like all is lost. Watch what happens when it looks like God himself has been defeated. He won't stay lost for long. Seven months, 
or maybe three days. And God will accomplish his own victory in his own time. Three chapters, three movements. Loss, exile, homecoming. Or you could say Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Death, burial, resurrection. That's what God does with the greatest conceivable loss. That's what God does when it looks like all is lost and when it looks like he has lost. And why does he do it? Who does he do it for? Think back to chapter 4. The people sinned. They tried to manipulate God. They tried to control God. And the punishment for sin is exile. But who goes into exile? Not the people, but the Lord himself. The Lord of the covenant goes into exile instead of his people. And he endures a kind of death in being sealed up in a false god's temple. But then he defeats the false god, demonstrates his power to the nations, and delivers himself back to his people. This is divine self-substitution for the sake of salvation. This is a preview of an even greater exile and new exodus to come. An even greater self-imposed captivity and humiliation and an even greater deliverance. All of us have sinned by rejecting God's rule over us. All of us have sinned by trying to control God. All of us have sinned by living as if God exists to serve us instead of us existing to serve God. What we deserve is to be sent by God into the eternal punishment of exile called hell. But instead, he came to us in the person of his son. Jesus endured the ultimate exile on the cross. He suffered the punishment for our sins in order to reconcile all who believe to God. And then on the third day, he ended his own self-imposed exile by rising from the dead and conquering death forever. He left the tomb and he left death itself prostrate on the floor. When Christ rose from the dead, he defeated death forever. And he holds out that promise of overcoming death forever to all who repent, all who believe, all who trust in him. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, or if you think of yourself as a Christian, but God is not at that center of gravity of your life, turn from sin and trust in him. Recognize that whatever is the greatest loss you could possibly suffer, God himself in the person of his son suffered far worse. He can overcome the greatest loss because he himself has gone through the greatest loss. He deserves your complete trust. Only he can deliver you from every loss, every consequence of your own sin, ultimately death and eternal punishment itself. So trust in him. Repent of your sins. Believe in him today. God himself has come back. And verses 17 and 18 basically provide a record of what the Philistines sent back and kind of a memorial that Israel set up to commemorate the event, kind of setting up an Ebenezer so they wouldn't forget. But the story isn't quite over. God came back. But what happened to his people when he did? Verse 19 through the first verse of chapter 7 tells us, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. 
he struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kirath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Verse 19 tells us that the men of Beth Shemesh failed to treat God's ark as holy. They failed to give God glory by treating the ark the way he had commanded them. Numbers 4 verse 5 says that the ark should always be veiled so that no one sees it directly. That's a sign of God's holiness. You can't look upon God's face directly and live because of your sin, so, so the ark gets veiled to remind you of God's holiness. But the men of Beth Shemesh didn't do that. They looked straight into the ark. So what's happening here? God has come back to his people, but God's people are acting like Philistines. They're not treating God with the reverence, the awe, the respect, the worship that he deserves. And so... God treats them like Philistines. Their hearts are no different from their pagan neighbors, so God treats them no differently. There is no partiality with God. No one gets a pass with God because they outwardly belong to his people. And then the men of Beth Shemesh ask two questions. The first is a very good question. The second is a very bad question. First question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That is a good question. When you begin to ask that question, that's the beginning of a right relationship with God. When you start to ask that question, you're starting to do business with God as he really is. And you're starting to see yourself as you really are. Who, who can stand before this holy God? If you've never asked that question before, you don't know God. If you've never asked that question before, you don't know yourself. It's when you start to recognize how difficult it is to be in a right relationship with God that you are starting to get on the right track. What's the answer to that question? Who can stand before this holy God? It's not you or me trusting in our own righteousness. It's not you or me based on anything we can do. It's not like, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as she is. I'm a more moral person. That will do nothing for you before this holy God. Only those who trust in the perfectly holy one who gave himself for our sake can stand before this holy God. But now we come to the second question. To whom shall he go up away from us? That's the question the Philistines all asked. How can we get rid of God? He just came back. And now they want to get rid of him. This isn't working out so well. Let's send him away. It's just like in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus sends the demons into the pigs and the pigs all drown. And then in Mark 5, 17, it says, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. We don't like how things are going for us since you showed up, Jesus, so why don't you leave? We don't like how things are going for us, Lord, since you came back, so 
Who can we give you a way to? If it turns out that you and God cannot live in close proximity with each other, if the confrontation with the one true God causes you problems, then don't ask how you can get rid of God, but how you can get right with God. Something's got to change in this situation, and it's not getting rid of God. It's getting rid of whatever in your life is causing you to be out of whack with Him. One day, every person in this room will see the glory of Jesus face to face, and there will be no chance to say, to whom shall we send Him? To whom shall He go up? It's like our reading from earlier in Revelation chapter 6. There will be no place to hide from his glory and from his severe and exacting judgment. The only time to hide is now. The only place to hide is Jesus. Don't say, how can we get him to go away? Say, where can I hide so I can be safe with him? You can hide yourself in Jesus now and be safe in him and safe with him forever. At the end of our passage the lord is back with his people but the people aren't all back with god they've regained his presence but they're in danger of losing it because their hearts are not right before him god incarnate endured the ultimate exile on the cross in order to bring us the ultimate homecoming he himself endured loss and exile in order to make himself our home forever a home that can never be lost a home that can never be ruined a home that if you trust in him you will never be cast out of and that nothing can harm or ruin for you the exile of god incarnate is the end of exile for all who believe it's why we can look forward in joyful confidence to the day when we will see him face to face. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to endure loss and exile for our sake and to uh, bring about a homecoming out of the grave that would include us and would bring us into your presence forever. Father, we pray that we would trust in him. We pray that we would treat you as holy. We pray that we would be confident in your power to overcome every loss, to undo all exile, and to bring us into your presence forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.